All right. Welcome to the Deconstructing Data Podcast. I'm Jesse Lezak, CMO at VDEX, along with co-host Joshua Morgan, marketer extraordinaire, and of course, David Finkelstein, VDEX's co-founder and CEO. So today's guest is Michael Steele. Michael is CEO of Flywheel Digital. And as the CEO, his job is to, of course, set the vision and strategy, then make sure everyone else has what they need to execute. Um, so he started Flywheel from what I was reading a little, Michael, on the side while you were teaching at, um, digital marketing at a local tech school. Um, and after hearing from students and partners how much of a need there was for more technical, transparent approach to digital marketing, Flywheel quickly became you know, your focus as you grew. So before that, you founded and sold the good stuff. And before that, worked for a SaaS startup. Um, so thank you so much for being here, Michael. We really yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm uh, really excited to be here. Absolutely. If you don't mind, could you please just start from the beginning and tell us your full story and, um, you know, tell listeners a little about Flywheel and how you help people there. Yeah, totally. So um, uh, I've been in digital marketing for a long time now, so since about 2007. Um, so a lot of changes have happened since then. Um, but I think most relevant to starting Flywheel, you captured a really important part of our origin story, was, which is I was, I was teaching this course, and it's a nighttime course. So it's a lot of um, marketing managers, marketing directors, business owners. And they actually often took the course um, after working with an agency and kind of having this experience where they're going, I think my agencies may be ripping me off on the digital side, or maybe they're not. I don't even know. I'm not even sure what's happening here. Uh, so I need to learn this stuff so I can figure out how to make the decisions about this. Um, and that was just a really striking experience for me um, as someone who had been in digital for so long to just kind of reground in the reality of most businesses of they need a lot of information about what's going on with their digital marketing, um, in addition to a group that can just do it in a really technically proficient way. Um, and so part of that, what informed Flywheel was that element of transparency, but also that element of just being a really technical digital marketing group first uh, that focuses on, you know, the nuts and bolts that makes things really go, as opposed to say, um, uh, frankly, a creative agency that maybe bolts on a PPC person, which is what I saw a lot of. So um, that's that's a big part of what uh, informed us getting going. And I think because of my presence in the community here in Canada as a teacher, uh, and because there was such a need for a technical approach to marketing, uh, we've been able to go really quickly. And so our business today, Flywheel, uh, has kind of three business units. So we work with our clients on organic growth, so typically through SEO, through content. Uh, we work with our clients through paid growth, um, so that's search, social, wherever. Uh, and most recently, we've actually split out a, um, uh, an analytics and web development business unit um, with a focus on marketing and data. And we did that uh, really because we found my gut check for, you know, what makes for agency great is, you know, if I'm that digital marketing director, you know, on the other side of the classroom or, you know, on the other client side for us, you know, is this the agency is, would I want to hire my agency? Would I want to hire Flywheel? And what we found is so often um, the analytics side and even the web dev side to an extent was kind of the unlocking piece of what makes paid go, what makes SEO grow. Um, and so now we work those together. And part of why we're called Flywheel is, is 
my fundamentals of uh, what makes for great digital marketing is that feedback loop between how you drive traffic, how you convert it, and then the data behind it. Um, so that idea of being able to see the full picture of, of what makes um, digital marketing go, but also be really grounded in the data um, was a big part of our story, certainly from day one and is becoming, I'd say more of a focus all the time. Uh, that's great, Michael. Um, great to meet you. Um, mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, you have an interesting background, obviously, and, and since this is the yeah, Deconstructing Data podcast, I'm glad I can say that. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to start by talking about uh, audience building when it comes to data. Um, here at BDEX, we build um, custom audiences for brands, and we recently launched a product called OmniIQ that helps brands build what we call ad fraud free expanded audiences based on their first party data. Um, so this is something we're really passionate about. Uh, and I can tell, you know, from looking at your background, obviously, um, something that, uh, that you guys are passionate about as well. Um, what do you think really makes a good targeted audience and how are you addressing that with your clients? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And it's something we spend a ton of time on, especially because people come to us for that technical perspective. The uh, audience building side of it is, is a huge part of what we do, especially on the advertising side. Um, for us, there's a few pieces that go into what make uh, a great audience. Um, and the first, the first piece we like to look at is uh, the scope and the depth of the data. Um, and so what I mean by that is uh, broadly with advertising, when you're targeting a very small group of people, um, it's highly targeted, which is nice. And a lot of people think digital marketing is, you know, focusing on very, very small amounts of people. Um, although that's part of the case, in reality, what that means is uh, your ads get very, very expensive. You have to overpay to reach a very small audience. Um, and so a lot of what we look at is how can we actually reach a you know, wide amount of people that still are relevant in a lot of different ways um, and then allow kind of the ad algorithms to do the work of, uh, of finding the people within those large audiences that are most likely to buy. Um, and so what that usually looks like is lookalikes. And you mentioned you have a lookalike product. We certainly do some you know, demographic or even you know, retargeting style audiences. And we can talk about that, but lookalikes really are foundations. And a big part of what we find makes for good lookalikes is the scope of the data. So do we have uh, a wide audience that we're reaching? Do we have a wide data set that we're pulling from? But then also what's the depth of that data that creates the lookalikes? And so what I mean by depth is one way to create a lookalike audience and to take a step back by lookalike, of course, we mean, you know, here's this set of people that took this action uh, or did this thing, find more people like these. And uh, uh, one version of that is, you know, find, here's the set of people that clicked our ad, find more people like the people who clicked our ad. And that's got a great scope of data. There's probably a lot of people that have clicked your ad. What we try to get more towards is deeper data, people who have taken higher intent. So for example, of course, you know, the ultimate uh, depth of data is people who have uh, bought your product, filled out your form to request a demo, or um, taken that even further down the line, not just people who have bought your product, people who have bought your product 10 times or have been a customer for five years. And the deeper you can go while still having a good scope of the data, we find um, is, is, is kind of a balance we're constantly playing with. And what we'll experiment with our clients is, you know, e-commerce is an easy one to use as an example. Uh, 
add to cart, there's usually a lot of people that have added their product to the cart. Um, that gives you a great scope, but is it deep enough compared to just creating a lookalike based on purchases? And every client's got a different data set. And a lot of what we do is that balance of how wide is our data set and how deep, how close to being kind of the perfect customer are they? Um, and I think that's one of the biggest levers for thinking about audiences and certainly ties in with your new product. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. And we're, you know, depth of data is really important. Uh, and that's, you know, I think that's something that we really focus on with our customers is making them, helping them understand that building a model is not just looking at demographics. You, you gotta, you gotta go a lot deeper than that. And you have to know where the data came from and the, you know, the whole thing that we talk about with the ad fraud free guarantees that, you know, a lot of data people don't realize is tied to ad fraud. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of bad data out there. And so when you're sure. building a model, if you're building a model based on that bad data, what are you going to get <laughs> bad data in bad data out? Right. So, um, that's, uh, those are important points you make and, and, and definitely, you know, a big part of our focus as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agreed. Absolutely. So good stuff. I have a question for both David and Michael. So what do you both think the future of ad audience building has in store for advertisers? Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll take the first stab at it then David, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Part of what I'm starting to see now is, is, um, I, I think of different kind of epochs, if you will, of digital advertising. And in the internet, epochs are really only about five years. And um, where it really started was what I call that hyper-targeting time, where people were really focused on, hey, we can target really specific demographics uh, on the internet. That's really cool. Like, let's get in really targeted. And then I think there was another era, uh, you know, up until a couple of years ago, where lookalikes were so powerful that a lot of targeting was kind of done for you in a sense where you could really rely on on the on the algorithms whether it's facebook or someone else to just say here's our customers really high level take it and run with it what we're starting to see now in a new epoch um, is is a couple things uh, the idea of algorithmic lookalike targeting still really really relevant and powerful um, but the data sets that typically powered it those third-party data sets um, are changing um, and there's a few ways people are overcoming that. And so that typical data set of, hey, our, our pixel tracks purchases and then people buy based on it, um, given that doesn't work as well, a few different things have happened. One, I think certainly is the rise of first party data and going, how are we collecting other data about our customers? How are we feeding that back into to our ad platforms? Um, and there's kind of a technical challenge there. Um, but also I'm finding kind of, uh, we've started to see, um, demographic intent based or even other types of behavioral audiences that aren't lookalike based starting to catch up and perform well again alongside the lookalikes and we're even starting to layer together those hey you're a you're a lookalike audience um, but we need uh you know you to have an interest in um mountain biking whatever it happens to be that kind of layering mix and matching i'm finding is is uh becoming more important uh and a high level i think it, it, it we're going away from again really entirely algorithmic targeting to kind of what I call smarter algorithmic targeting. We're really focusing on what are our inputs and we're putting some more constraints on it because the algorithm on its own, we can't rely on it like we used to. So that's kind of my take on it. But yeah, I'd love to hear uh, David or anyone else's thoughts. Uh, I got to say, I don't know if I have much to add because I agree a hundred percent. I mean, that's, that's what we've been concentrating on as well. I mean, first party data, super important. We think that that the, 
you know, the reliance on third-party data is, is waning and first-party data is becoming king. Um, and using that from a, from a modeling perspective, super strong, um, but, and taking it to the next level. And that's, you know, we, we're doing that right now for a lot of our clients where we're literally building audiences, um, using machine learning, uh, essentially, you know, building a model for them that is a very specific model based on what we know about the audience and then taking it a step further and then even filtering it and saying, okay, well, now that we've got this audience that we've built, let's take some, you know, additional data that we know about these consumers and filter it further so that we can say, okay, well, we really only want to target people that are, you know, Hey, we got this great audience of people that are potential buyers, but we really want to concentrate on the ones that are within this income level or within this geo or within whatever. Um, and so we're taking an additional step to further uh, filter them. And I, I agree hundred percent. I really think that that further optimization going forward on models and, um, and audiences that are built on those models uh, is the future. hundred percent. So Michael, I just want to say we have kind of a kinship because I'm a former educator myself, um, where I actually cut my teeth in marketing with BDEX. Um, so David and Jesse have been fantastic to me and given me the opportunity to learn. And so in many ways, because uh, it is a, a recent shift that I've had, like I'm still, you know, really kind of understanding, getting to understand the basics. Um, and so like when I think of like the ad audience building, I'm thinking more of like a demographic information. And so I'd be curious to hear kind of what you think about when it comes to demographics and other segments. Yeah, uh, great question. And always uh, happy to talk to a, a fellow educator um, for sure, which I definitely also still consider myself one despite having not done it in a while. Um, I certainly try to find opportunities like this. Um, so the question was, um, you know, how do you define or think about demographic information? For me, it's, uh, I've actually stopped using the um, word demographic as much when referring to our targeting. Um, I think demographic information in the traditional sense is your age, your location, maybe your gender, the stuff that you put on your you know, passport application form. And um, that data is both really sensitive and somewhat unreliable online. Um, you know, we used to have a really clear sense of that from uh, for generally people online, whether through their Google profile or their Facebook profile, uh, it, we've gotten, there's a, there's a lower percentage of people we understand that for now, um, whether because they just don't put their age online because they're not able to infer it via tracking, whatever that is. Um, so I am more often referred to what I, what we call interest-based audiences. And so for us, that means looking at, um, again, whether it's Google or Facebook and for our agency, that's the big two. Uh, how are we building profiles of people that are as psychographic as they are demographic? And we'll certainly still pull in those demographics, but look at a lot of the other interests that um, are really, really uh, high signal for us. Um, and so for us, that looks like, for example, uh, the ads you've clicked on Facebook, the things you follow on Facebook, the websites that you visit maybe from Facebook or that have a Facebook integration, that's all interest we can pull and Facebook pulls to say, this is a profile of who you are. Um, that's the stuff we really look at. And when we say, you know, often when our clients start with, can we create some demographic audiences? 
we will still say, you know, you can only get so far with uh, traditional demographics of age, gender, location. But when you layer on some of those interest level um, profiles, then you have really compelling data. And so we've shifted from demographic to interest based data in that regard. That was all really great. And I don't know if you guys saw there was a, a comment that popped up. So I'm going to put it back up here. Um, what are the skills marketers will need to adapt as data becomes bigger and more important? Will marketing teams need to hire their own data engineers to run platforms like BigQuery, Snowflake? When is it too technical for marketing? Great question by Jesse Allette, who's a previous guest on one of our previous episodes. He's the founder of Lead Magic. So let me pull that up there. Anyone Thanks, Je Thanks Jesse, for, for bringing that up. Um, personally, I, I think that what you're going to see is just like there's so many MarTech tools out there that do all kinds of things. Um, I think that you're going to see MarTech tools that similar to BDX's Omni IQ performs machine learning for you and does, you know, builds audiences for you and does all of these things so that marketers don't all need to become data engineers or hire data engineers that the tools will, will hopefully, you know, do it for you. Um, you'll just need to have an understanding of, you know, what you need, you know, what your input is and what your output is. I always think of everything as an input and an output. What are we starting with? And what are we trying to get to? Um, and as long as you know that, you'll be able to figure out which tool is best for you. Um, but I do think that there's, you know, there's already, you know, like ours, uh, some tools that are coming out. But, you know, in the next two years, you're going to see a ton of tools coming out that are all audience building, machine learning based uh, types of tools. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. And, and how I um, approach this kind of question is, I think it's really important um, that marketers now uh, learn to speak the language of data and learn how to work with pe people like data engineers um, or just learn the principles behind it that allow you to make decisions, again, about audiences or about MarTech tools. And um, you, so you definitely don't have to be a data engineer. I don't think you even necessarily need to be able to write much SQL. Uh, but I think to understand, you know, what does structured data look like? How does data related? And how does kind of more and better data equal more and better performance? I think that feedback loop is becoming really important. I think that's, that is still a leap for a lot of marketers that previously didn't really have to think with that part of their brain, uh, even in the digital marketing space. Um, but I think more and more understanding the data feedback loop and the structure of data uh, is becoming uh, a, key, a key part of it. Good points. Absolutely. Okay, well, um... Was there anything anyone else wanted to add on that? Otherwise, I'm going to move on to the next question. Well, I was going to say it just seems like the um, regardless of what aspect of marketing you're in, whether it's the the actual data itself or the creative part, that that analytics side is becoming increasingly, increasingly popular. Um, you know, even if you take people that are marketing, such as like social media management, community engagement, and things like that, like that need to at least uh, embrace understanding of the data is becoming more and more important. Absolutely. Every time Josh talks about data, I'm always reminded of the data data conversation, but I'll save that for another time. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, Michael, are you or will you, are you willing or will you share your um, tech stack or specifically your ad tech stack? Like what tools could you not live without? 
Yeah, 100%. So um, a lot of what we do day to day, frankly, lives in platform. You know, our ads managers themselves, they're, they're in Google ads, they're in the Facebook ads manager and so on. And um, there is a level of being where the data is that's still super important. Um, but there's quite a few things we've layered on top of that. Um, so I'd break them into a couple buckets. So one is, is uh, for kind of reporting, ag aggregation and attribution. Um, so understanding for ads in particular, you know, how much money are ads making, which is like the, the question everyone's trying to figure out. A lot of that we've originally done through Google Data Studio, which is a tool for anyone who's not familiar that aggregates whatever data sources you choose and just helps you put them in one dashboard, kind of like Tableau. And we still do use a lot of that. Our stack is evolving now to include a lot more of um, uh, tools that are more built for that attribution right out of the box. So Google Data Studio, I think to put it another way, you can take the data and you can put it all in one place and you can even say, this is how this data connects to that data. But there's not really an element of going, here's how this data, um, uh, you know, here's how much we should actually attribute from this data source to that. We're starting to look at other tools that do do that kind of attribution work. Um, tools like Triple, Triple Whale, Hyros, Northbeam. A lot of these are e-commerce focused, which is again, I think, um, it's not an e-commerce specific problem, but they are kind of towards the front of really needing this ASAP. Um, so we started to incorporate some of those tools and we're partners with some of those. Um, the next way in which our stack has evolved, I think, is we used to do any kind of event tracking. So what are people doing on our website, whether it's form fills and so on, pretty much exclusively with Google Tag Manager. Uh, Google Tag Manager is still a big part of our stack. We really expanded that um, to most often segment. And similar to what the other tools are doing from a attribution standpoint, segments doing from the perspective of um, aggregation, meaning, okay, we have all these different sources of data, our ad platforms and so on, let's make sure they all speak the same language and line up those data across systems. So that's become a much bigger part of what we do. Um, and then the last two ones, I'm almost through our stack, is uh, audience kind of, uh, you know, power up tools for lack of a better term, often with first party, but really whatever party we can find is what we'll use. Uh, the two most common we use are uh, Clearbit and they do really great B2B data uh, and also Shopify for a lot of those e-commerce clients. And they've just recently started opening up first party audiences. Um, we're always looking at new options for that. I know uh, BDEX has maybe something that would fall into that category as well. Um, and then the very last is from an analysis standpoint, although we'll always be a Google Analytics shop, we and some of our clients have started using Mixpanel more for marketing as well. And it has a few advantages in terms of how it chops up data that um, have become more and more interesting to us. So it started with not much and maybe ended with a very long-winded answer, but that's kind of an overview of the stack we use. Oh man, that's awesome. Just for the sake of the comments, because I like to tag a few tools, like if you had to pick three, like which ones should I suggest as Michael's top suggestions? Yeah, I'm, I really, um, I really ride for Segment. I love using Segment. Um, and I think they've done a really good job in the way they've organized their product. Um, I think the second I would probably recommend, I think it's still foundational for any data-driven marketer to understand Google Data Studio and how to put together data, blended data through Data Studio. Um, and the third I would probably put, particularly because I don't think many marketers are fluent in it, is Mixpanel. And um, I think the other way kind of digital marketing is changing is you used to have your digital marketing here and your product team over here. I think part of what you can do with Mixpanel is align 
uh, marketing and product the way historically you might only think about aligning marketing and sales. So I think that's, that, those are the three I'd call out. Oh, thanks. So um, what are some common mistakes that you think businesses make when it comes to building their, you know, their ad audiences? Yeah, I think when it comes to ad audiences, the most common mistake I see is um, being too prescriptive. Um, and so that can mean a few different things, but uh, a great example is like we were talking about with demographics or interests. Uh, most marketers, especially if they came from say a business school background or a traditional background, they'll typically have an idea of, hey, here's our persona. Here's the person we've created who's really into our product. Let's go get them. Let's go target the, you know, 50 of those people that fit that exact profile and win their business. Um, and what I think that misses is the opportunity to go, you know, there's a lot of people who don't fit your exact persona that could be very, very interested in your product. And you're missing not only the opportunity to learn that, but you're missing the kind of um, affordability that comes with building a large audience. So you'll pay a lot of money to reach a very small audience. So getting too prescriptive, I think you miss out on potential customers and you pay more for the ones you do get. Um, that's the main way it looks like, I think is in kind of the type of profiles people create. Uh, I see it in other ways too. Sometimes that means, uh, you know, lots of people have biases around what ad placements work or don't work, um, you know, or what even what channels, you know, whether it's banner ads or, or app ads or so on. Uh, and that's different for every customer. And then even through the customer journey where we see some more sophisticated marketers saying, uh, you know, our customer is going to take this state, they're, they're going to fill out this form. And once they fill out this form, they're ready for this ad. And it's kind of like this perfectly engineered theory. But in reality, customers are always just wandering around the internet trying to figure out what they want. So being prescriptive, I think either about your audience, your placements or your journey, which are all really audience in another way, um, is one of the biggest mistakes I see. That's really good points. Um, so I have a question for you. So obviously everybody talks about um, the deprecation of third-party cookies. That's all anyone's talking about lately. Um, and so tell us a little bit about what you advise team, the people that you talk to when it comes to this topic and the deprecation of third-party cookies. Yeah, it's a really good question. And thankfully, one I'm prepared for because I've been asked it many times over the last year, as I'm sure you have as well. Yep. Um, and uh, there's a couple points I, I, I really try to make to our clients when they ask about what does the cookie leaf future look like? What do we need to do to prepare? Um, the number one point I make is that in the future, you need to have multiple windows into your house. Uh, you can't just kind of look at one data set and trust that it's the truth. The reality is there's so many different ways to gather data. There's so many different ways um, to look at it that any kind of single data source is gonna become uh, either not totally reliable or not totally robust enough. Um, and so having multiple data sources together helps give you that full picture. And so a really concrete example of that is we have some of our more sophisticated clients will say, let's just go to server side, 100% server side tracking, let's run it all kind of fire totally on the back end, doesn't matter what they do in their browser, and that's our data. Um, but the reality is server side tracking, while 100% reliable, it will tell you 100% did someone click that button that at that time? Uh, and was it part of that session? It won't tell you who, what are all the other interests that person is online? Where did they come from reliably? You might not even know what device they're on. It just knows that the button got clicked. 
So we've seen very few cases where a total server side setup makes sense. Um, browser side often fills a really big gap in terms of who are these people. And I don't think we're ready to get rid of that. And I think even with it in a cookie list world, there will be technical solutions to get some of that data. It may not be as reliable. So you do need server side to line up with it, but I don't think browser side tracking in some form is going to go away hundred um, percent. And browser side and server side are just two versions of data. The other way I think about it is a bit of as a return to traditional marketing where one of the most valuable tools that was not that valuable, that's now very valuable again, is uh, customer survey information. Why did you buy? Where did you find us? That type of validation against what you're doing across your actual, uh, you know, other structured web data um, can be a really, really valuable gut check. So I think the future and how you address it is having multiple sources of data for multiple purposes, not expecting them all to be one-to-one, -one, but expecting that they'll help you kind of triangulate a, a truth, if you will, if, if, if such a thing exists in terms of web data. Yeah, good points. And, and what I hear you saying is, is you know, is uh, something that we talk about a lot as well. First party data becomes more and more valuable and people need to learn how to um, build that value exchange to be able to obtain it and mm -hmm. uh, then figure out what to do with it, you know, learn what to, how to, how to leverage it. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about this earlier. One more question um, uh, with respect to sort of the comparison of the, the old guard marketing data systems that are like Google Analytics first type systems to, versus the new guard um, stitching together customer journey data from multiple sources using things like segment. Um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you see that transition happening in the future. Yeah, totally. I, I know kind of part of thematically this podcast is about, um, you know, the future of data and where it's going. I think this is a really important uh, consideration in it. Uh, I think all the changes we've seen, whether they're in terms of privacy or tooling and so on, is um, I think helping people uh, move past a couple wrong assumptions that they maybe used to have. One of the biggest, I think, wrong assumptions people have had that is now less true than ever is uh, that your marketing data set is your website activity. And a lot of what the old Garda data looked like is, you know, let's track everything we can through Google Analytics. Let's invest in making our Google Analytics setup as robust, as dialed in as possible, and really focus on a website first model of, you know, our data is our website. Um, and invest heavily in that. And there's a lot Google Analytics could unlock for people in terms of website tracking. But I think it's the old guard. And I think the, the reality that was always true, but now we have the tooling and I think the perspective to, to um, action it is your data isn't your website, your data is your customers and your audience. And um, that means taking an approach that is still very much involving the website, but isn't only about your website anymore. It's about all the ad platforms that you're putting data on. It's about often your digital product or your physical product and your experience there. And that full customer life cycle that happens across social, that happens across product and all these different places. So taking that approach to data, which is instead of saying, let's make our Google Analytics try to capture everything, it's more, let's make our Google Analytics feed into our overall picture of who our customer is and what they're doing is I think what the future of data looks like. Um, and it's, it's harder in a lot of ways, but I think it's much more accurate and robust to, to what marketing and to what this data actually means. 
Um, so that's kind of uh, a bit of a rant, I guess, but it's something I feel strongly about. And something I say often is, you know, good technical marketing should line up with good marketing principles. And this is a way in which I think it's true. Marketers of all trades should be focusing on their customer instead of their website. And this is another way it presents itself. Yeah, it's harder in some ways, but it's definitely going to get easier over time. Mm -hmm. so totally. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Absolutely. All good stuff. I mean, you kind of already jumped into this a little bit, but um, is there anything you would add about what you think the future of data in advertising looks like? And also what makes you most excited or even paranoid about it? Yeah, I think um, I, I did kind of cover a lot of it with, with my rant before, um, but there is, I think, a lot. Another piece of it that I think about in the future that makes me both excited and paranoid, particularly as an agency owner. Um, and that's that historically the, the data we had uh, was a lot, was basically good enough with frankly very little instrumentation or investment. And so as a marketer, for, to a great extent, uh, you could you know, have your Google Analytics set up, you could put the ad pixels on the website you need, and you could run your programs and you could kind of know how well they were driving sales and you could kind of know what was going on. And um, that wasn't totally true, but it was true enough that a lot of marketers didn't think about their data as something they really need to invest in. They just thought about it as something that was just there. Um, I think what's really exciting now is most marketers, technical marketers, digital marketers are waking up to, okay, our data is a few different things. It's, it's a legal risk. It's a strategic advantage and it's a resource. And so for all those reasons, we need to invest in it. And the investment I see marketers making in their data is really exciting. Whether that looks like, you know, their MarTech stack, the way they tag things out, or even just the way they think about it strategically, um, that level of investment uh, is really exciting. Uh, of course, the piece that makes me paranoid is, you know, we certainly have experienced a bit some, some clients or even prospects going, hey, you know, Google Analytics, like I have that set up, it's free. Like I'm, my current data budget is zero. I have a massive ad budget, but I have a zero data budget. And part of where we need to educate them uh, and where that paranoia comes from is, you know, hey, like maybe you shouldn't think about your ad budget and your data budget as separate line items anymore. It's all part of the same feedback loop in the same process. Um, but that education, of course, uh, you know, I enjoy education, but I think that's something that we'll have to overcome as an industry over the next few years to kind of get to that future state. That's a really great point. Yep. Thank you. So, uh, Michael, quick question for you. Um, but if you could go back with all the information you have now, and if you could go mm -hmm. back to like day one of when you started, what is one or two pieces of advice that you would like to give yourself? Yeah, I think um, going back to the start and thinking about, uh, I'll try to keep it in the world of data and technical marketing, or I could go a lot of directions, but um, I think the biggest one I would uh, give myself is there's something that digital marketers, especially technical ones and analysts love to say, which is that it depends. And I think the biggest piece of advice I would give is that's not necessarily good enough but at the same time, you're also never going to get absolute certainty. The nature of our business is, uh, you know, we need to be able to make conclusions uh, with imperfect data and get it as perfect as we can and, you know, make sure there's a lot of fidelity in that data. 
but not wait for that perfect state where all of our data is in this perfectly configured way and we have statistical significance on every decision we have to make. Um, we have to find that balance or, you know, younger Michael, you have to find that balance of, you know, having a high standard for your data and what goes into it, being willing to make conclusions with what you've got. And when you make those decisions, just acknowledge the uncertainties. And although we're in a world of data, we're still in a world of uncertainty. And I think that's uh, important to remember or you can get stuck spinning your wheels. And then uh, one last question I have for you, because, yeah. you know, like thinking of myself and there are many other career changers, even like pivoting teachers, educators and stuff that are interested in the world of marketing are just now getting into marketing. What are some pieces of advice that you could give those individuals that are just kind of getting started? Yeah, totally. I think my answer is somewhat related in that um, I think there's it's probably not talked about enough in digital marketing, even though it's become a prevalent conversation in other places, uh, that there's a really high risk, I think, of imposter syndrome when you enter this industry. And um, uh, I think with working with data in particular, it's so easy to get that imposter syndrome, especially because it can seem like, well, on the internet, we can track everything. As people say, we should be able to make decisions with 100% certainty, whether that's about what audience works best, what ad works best, whatever. Um, and that's not totally the case. I think you, you, you just learn to live with um, that uncertainty and understand when your logic is really strong. So the advice I'd give is just be, be aware of imposter syndrome and know that if you understand some of the principles we talked about in the start of this conversation, um, then you can trust your decision-making uh, and trust your logic behind it where, uh, you know, that should lead you in, as opposed to the imposter syndrome or the fear. So I think that's the biggest thing I'd want to get across. Good. good answers. Yeah. Well, um, in closing, we would love to get input from listeners in the comments about BeatX's podcast. Um, you know, David, actually, I don't know if you saw, there was a question from Amir earlier. He was wondering about your ship, of course. Um, I, I, Amir, I did not move it. I didn't want to interrupt Michael, but yes, no, I didn't move it. Maybe I've moved my screen a little bit. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> one of these days I, I've been meaning to take it down and put something else there just to see if you notice. As if you wouldn't. <laughs> yep. Not the first time Amir has mentioned the ship. So, um, <laughs> also, you know, are there any guests that people would like to hear from? Please put them in the comments. We're currently working on a podcast page, so we'll have that up on vdex.com coming up soon. If you'd like to nominate anyone to be on the Deconstructing Data podcast, um, we'd like to know, you know, what questions do you have that you would like us to answer and ask the guests, as well as what data trends and advertising and marketing and also identity. So um, we want to make this for you. So please send any and all qualitative data feedback to us at info at but it was really great to meet you, Michael. So thank you so much for coming on the Deconstructing Data Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I uh, had a really great time. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, Michael. All right. Well, Good thank stuff. you. All right, take care. All for today. <laughs>